Well, if you don't know the story of Amy Semple McPherson, you really ought to. Um, she is California Pentecostalism at its uh, most exciting. And uh, um, she knew how to accommodate uh, Pentecostalism to uh, the Hollywood scene. And uh, whatever else uh, you might say about her, she was a success. Um, <laughs> she arrived in L.A. penniless in 1918 and within four years had bu built Angelus Temple and paid for it that seats more than the Crystal Cathedral. So there, Robert Schuller. Um, um, I've been fascinated by Amy Semple McPherson. Um, my wife is relieved that I seem only interested in dead women. But that little piece that was done on the White Horse Inn um, was my concluding observation after having talked about how much Amy was committed to drama and to music and to joy and to love and to excitement. I said, what can we learn about from Amy Semple McPherson? Well, I said we could learn the character of uh, Pentecostalism in the 1920s and 30s, and we can learn that a lot of what was Pentecostal in the 1930s now passes as Reformed evangelism. <coughs> <coughs> Moving right along. <laughs> well, we did, we did a grand survey of the history of the church, or at least a quick survey, and uh, I want to similarly do a quick survey of the Bible on what it has to say about um, uh, worship. We will return uh, to uh, look at particulars um, hereafter, but I, I do think uh, sometimes it is useful uh, to try to see the forest, even we, if we miss a lot of the trees, uh, to see something of the, um, the movement, of the development of uh, God's uh, self-revelation about worship um, by, by looking quickly uh, through the Old Testament and the New Testament to try to see the, the major aspects of, of the revelation of God so we can get some sense of the basic character of um, uh, what God has been teaching his people uh, about worship. Already last night I talked a little bit about um, worship before the fall and uh, we uh, reform people very rightly return to the early chapters of Genesis over and over again to try to get some notion of God's original creative intention uh, for his people before uh, things were uh, complicated and in many ways ruined by the fall. And uh, we noted there that uh, even before the fall, there were concentrated times of meeting with God and um, that God had set aside a, a special day uh, and a time for meeting with him and that... Um, at least many Reformed theologians have argued that there was a sacramental presence in the garden, uh, that the tree of life was a sacramental expression of God's promise of life, a, uh, a pictorial representation as a means of his blessing, uh, giving the gift of life uh, to his people. And so already we see some of the aspects of uh, what is necessary to the worship of God. There needs to be concentration, there needs to be meeting, there needs to be time, and... Um, uh, there are means that God uses uh, to communicate uh, to his people. After the fall, of course, the, uh, the ordinary, the easy, the uh, uh, filial connection between uh, man and God is lost, and uh, God almost immediately testifies 
uh, to the need to restore the broken relationship. Um, I think one can argue that the first call to worship in the Bible is, Adam, where are you? Uh, Adam, who was supposed to be there in the, one might say, natural course of events uh, to meet with God and to worship God, uh, is now hiding from God and he has to be called to worship. He has to be summoned back uh, to the presence uh, of his God. And uh, Adam, in his shame and in his alienation, uh, has to be uh, dressed by God uh, to be able to stand in God's presence and to be able to stand uh, in the presence of uh, his fellow human beings. And again, Reformed theologians have debated exactly uh, what, that, what, what, what the fullness of the message is in God's taking animal skins to uh, dress Adam and Eve and whether that is a, uh, the first indication of the necessity of life for life, of, of death entering the world so that man might live. And uh, I, I think you're always a little bit, I'm always a little bit ambivalent, not wanting to read too much into the text. And yet uh, we find uh, in the very next chapter in Genesis 4 that uh, uh, Cain and Abel have learned somehow the principle of sacrifice, uh, learned somehow the notion that there has to be uh, a go-between between, between uh, them and God as they come into God's presence, that they must uh, come with uh, some sacrifice uh, to offer to God. And although uh, we're not told exactly how they learned that, whether by uh, divine revelation or whether by the example of God in, in making uh, clothes for Adam and Eve. Nonetheless, the principle of the need of a sacrifice is already uh, clear to them. And yet, uh, isn't it interesting that already with, uh, with Cain and Abel, it seems that the problem of formalism has entered the world. Um, again, we're not exactly sure all of the ramifications of God's unhappiness with Cain's sacrifice. Uh, but the scripture does say that God was unhappy with Cain and his sacrifice. And so I don't think we can say that the sacrifice itself was the problem. And we know that God later calls for uh, grain offerings. The problem was with Cain. The problem was with Cain's heart. The problem was the murder already present in Cain's heart. So right from the beginning, uh, we have the phenomenon both of necessary forms for worship, in the Old Covenant, you had to come to God with a sacrifice, but also the problem of formalism, that you could come with the right forms, but with your heart not engaged. And so that the, the basic problems of worship um, uh, were there right at the beginning. Uh, Isaiah would later say, The Lord says, Because this people draw near with their, lip, with their words and honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me. That was the problem with the people. And it's been a problem since the day of Cain uh, right down to, to today. It becomes a problem for us from time to time. Um, I don't know about you, but occasionally I've gone home and said to my wife, did we say the apostles created church today? Yes, Bob, we said it. Where were you? you know, or, um, or maybe uh, suddenly uh, I look down in the book and uh, I'm not quite sure what verse comes next. I was singing right along with everybody else, but uh, I really wasn't engaged uh, the mind could wander off. And uh, that kind of formalism, you see, on a small scale, is something we all battle all the time. And um, uh, it, it emerged right there in the earliest uh, setting of um, the, um, the, the, the fallen state of mankind. 
Now we have a kind of cryptic remark, you may have noticed, at the end of Genesis uh, chapter 4. The last verse talks about uh, how men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Verse um, 26. At that time men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Um, it seems as if before there at least had been Cain and Abel calling on the name of the Lord. Um, and perhaps this is just a summary of what has gone before. But what's interesting is that uh, at other places in the book of Genesis where that phrase occurs, they called upon the name of the Lord, it is always linked to the building of an altar and the offering of sacrifice. Uh, you can see that uh, if you are unbelieving in your hearts uh, in Genesis 12:8 and uh, 26:25, that this combination, you see, of calling on the name of the Lord uh, uh, is, is an act of prayer, but it's an act of prayer linked to the building of an altar and offering sacrifice because even the act of prayer cannot be offered to God apart from some mediator that opens the way. Natural, ordinary access to God immediately is not a privilege of fallen humanity. We are cut off from God. We have no right to talk to God even in and of ourselves. And that's testified, it seems to me, from the earliest um, uh, forms of patriarchal worship that we find in the book of Genesis. And it's interesting that the Bible then itself defines what an altar is. When God commands an altar to be built for the tabernacle in Exodus 20, verse 24, God says, I will come and meet with you and bless you there. So uh, fallen man, now alienated not only by his finiteness from meeting constantly with God, but alienated also by his sinfulness from meeting with God, needs a meeting place. Needs a place where he can have a measure of assurance that God will come and meet with him and not destroy him. And that's what an altar is. That's why the patriarchs built altars, so that they could meet with God, so that they could talk with God, so that they could offer the sacrifice uh, necessary uh, for that meeting with God. And in a sense then, when Israel comes out of Egypt, and when God gives his elaborate instructions for the building uh, of a tabernacle and later of a temple as the great meeting place, What God is doing is not really introducing something new, but he is regularizing that pattern and elaborating that pattern that has been with fallen mankind right from uh, really day one of the fall. And uh, what that tabernacle is, is in all of its detail, a testimony to the holiness of God and the danger of drawing near to that holy God if you're an unholy human being. And it's testified in all sorts of ways, isn't it? It's testified by the restrictions placed progressively on people as they draw near to God. Um, At least for a time, God dwelt visibly in the Holy of Holies. His Shekinah glory is literally His dwelling glory, isn't it? His, His tenting glory amongst His people. And, and the pattern of the, um, of the tabernacle and the pattern of the, of the temple later, wasn't it, was a, a pattern of the difficulty of access and the limit 
of access possible to God. And so when the temple was finally in its full glory, uh, there was a court of the Gentiles on the outside of the temple, and that was as close as a Gentile could come. And then there was the court of the women, which was as close as an Israelite woman could come. And then there was the court of Israel, where uh, faithful Jewish men could come if they were not deformed. Again, there were, there were restrictions, there were limitations on, on how close they could come. And then there was the sanctuary proper into which only the priests could come. And then the holy of holies into which only the high priest had come. All of that testifying, you see, of the difficulty of access to God. God as the holy God cannot be simply approached. You see how profoundly undemocratic this is. What is wrong with God? He's obviously not a good American. Uh, he doesn't know that we're all just like one another. Um, we're all just as good as one another. Um, that, that was testified, you see, very visibly in the worship of God so that in terms of that, that most holy place, that place where God dwelt among his people in the fullest and most profound sense, was inaccessible to all of Israel except one man, one day, a year. And what was God saying to his people? He was saying, access to me is not easy. Access to me is not automatic. It is expensive. It is costly. There is a demand. And, and the priest, the high priest, you remember, could come into that presence only with blood. Only with a sacrifice. He could come to the altar of the mercy seat only with that blood to cover his sins and the sins of the people. And, and, and God is testifying, you see, to so many things. That why, that's why this, this picture is so precious to us. Uh, in, in its details as well as in its, uh, in, in its general testimony that God is testifying in the whole series of ways about uh, how we come into his presence, how there has to be a substitute and a sacrifice, how we need an intercessor and an intermediary, how his holiness must be propitiated, how his anger against his people must be turned aside. And uh, Israel is being taught that lesson over and over and over again. And at least in moments in its history, it learned that lesson relatively well. Uh, because when uh, God manifested himself in glory and power at Mount Sinai, the people said, we don't want to hear God speak. It's too much for us. And, and again, this is a notion that uh, is, is sadly lacking. Any, any sense of this seems so sadly lacking in much of the church today. Any notion of the holiness of God, of the awesomeness of God, of the dangerous qualities of God. Uh, for those especially who have no sacrifice to bring, who have no uh, way of, of communing with God. And the temple stood then at the heart of Israel, just as the tabernacle had stood in the heart of the people as they traveled, as this constant testimony that you need God at the center, you need God at the heart, and yet the approach to God is limited. The approach to God is restricted. And although uh, there are there are testimonies of the people in the presence of God. The priest's uh, um, um, chest plate that had uh, 12 stones representing the 12 tribes. 
and uh, the showbread uh, in the sanctuary representing the people of Israel and the altar of incense re- representing the prayers of the people going up before God. Um, all, of those, all of those things testified to the presence of God and the, uh, um, uh, the, the presence of the people before God, but the people were not actually able to be there. Most of the people uh, were, were restricted and lived at a distance and were not able uh, to enter in. And all of that testified, you see, to the holiness of God uh, for the people. And God testified how important it was to him that his worship be right. And so he gave detailed directions. Uh, In the Old Testament, there is, it seems to me, no indication that creativity is ever prized in worship. Um, Spontaneity does not seem prized in worship. Doing it right with your heart engaged. Having the right forms with a warm heart is what the Old Testament calls for in worship. And it's interesting that uh, in a real sense, when uh, Moses brought down the Ten Commandments, one can say that the first four commandments are commandments very much related to worship. They are not exclusively related to worship, but they are very much related to worship. Uh, The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, The Lord God declares that he is supreme over all other pretenders to divine honors and that we as his people are to acknowledge no other God. Uh, The Lord, he is God, as they cried on Mount Carmel. The Lord, he is God. And that undivided loyalty is what the people of God are called to and what the people of God historically have had so much trouble maintaining. Uh, The awesomeness of the Lord, the attractiveness of things of this world, are a constant distraction to the people of God to stray into idolatry. And so the first commandment is in many ways a worship commandment that calls us away from the idolatry of worshiping false gods and to really making the Lord God supreme. And uh, uh, the New Testament reminds us that idolatry is not just a matter of images. Uh, Paul can talk about greed as idolatry, where we make money an idol. Not that we actually build a temple and literally bow down and worship it, but it's what we serve. It's what directs our life. It's what has power over us. It's what uh, demands our energies and our attention. And... uh, Uh, that kind of idolatry, any value, any power in our lives that detracts us from the Lord our God is an idol and is a violation of the first commandment. The second commandment is also uh, a commandment that relates to idolatry, only differently. Uh, The second commandment relates to the false worship of the true God. And sometimes we forget that is an act of idolatry according to the Old Testament. The false worship of the true God is an act of idolatry. And it's an act of idolatry about which the Lord can uh, burn in anger and wrath against his people. Now, at times he seems in the Old Testament slightly more tolerant of that act of idolatry um, than he is against uh, idolatry against the first commandment. But we need to see clearly that there are two kinds of idolatry in the Scripture the idolatry of worshiping false gods, but also the idolatry of worshiping the true God falsely. God was not pleased when they built a golden calf, even though they called him Jehovah. 
God was not pleased when uh, the northern kingdom built its own temple, even though they said they were worshiping Jehovah. They were not given that right to create temples, to create priesthoods, to create sacrifices, to create images, uh, even though they declared that in these temples, rituals, priests, and images, they were worshiping the Lord God. The Lord said that's a violation of the second commandment. It's a form of idolatry. The third commandment has to do with how we use our lips. And here again, although it's by no means exclusively related to worship, it is, it is a matter of worship, isn't it? We are, we are to say things that are true in worship, not things that are false. We are to express the genuine sentiments of our hearts, not be hypocrites in worship. There needs to be truthfulness in our use of our lips in relation to God in worship. And so, of course, also the fourth commandment, uh, clearly related to worship, whereby God gives us a day uh, for his worship, a day in which we rest from other activities that our hearts uh, might rest in him. And so uh, the, the, the passion, God's passion for his worship, uh, it seems to me is remarkably clear and um, remarkably um, important in the, in the whole life of the Old Testament. But the Old Testament itself, I think, makes clear that it is not an end in itself. Uh, in Zechariah, we're told that the priests are pointers, that they point beyond themselves, that there is a day yet coming when uh, uh, something better, something fuller, something more marvelous uh, will occur. Uh, Jeremiah speaks clearly of, the, of a new covenant. Psalm 110 that we sang earlier spoke of a new priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, the Old Testament itself abounds in indications that as glorious as the temple was, as solemn as it was, as seriously as God took his worship at that temple, it was not the ultimate there was a great day, a greater day coming, uh, a greater day expressed uh, in a variety of ways. Ezekiel could express it in, in, a, uh, in an image of a hugely expanded temple in size. Uh, Isaiah could uh, speak of it as a temple built in Egypt. Uh, I always sort of wonder what the dispensationalists do with that text. Um, they're so eager to have a temple built in Jerusalem. I wonder if they're quite so eager to see that temple built in Egypt. But um, various pictures that, that there is yet a greater day coming. Uh, that, that these things are not the end. These things are not the fulfillment. But that there is a greater day coming. And uh, that, that these are types. They are pointers. They are symbols of something yet to be realized in Israel. Now, some people have said, especially in our time, well, um, what you say about the temple and there being no room for creativity in the temple is true. Uh, after all, uh, we have the, uh, that, that great story of uh, uh, the, the sons of uh, Aaron being struck down by the wrath of God for offering strange incense on the altar. Uh, clearly, God was passionate about his temple. Uh, but... Um, uh, isn't there room for creativity? Isn't God approving of a measure of creativity in the Old Testament? What about the synagogue? And I've, I've heard lots of people produce that as sort of a trump card, um, winning the game. Uh, ah, 
the synagogue. Now you see, uh, the synagogue has no clear divine warrants in the Old Testament, does it? There's no clear passage in the Old Testament that says, Israel should establish synagogues and worship me there. This is something the people apparently uh, dreamed up on their own. Creatively, spontaneously. Um, and yet Jesus goes and worships in the synagogue, so it must be an approved institution. It shows that uh, we can be creative. We can come up with ideas. And uh, we, uh, we can find divine approval for those ideas. Well, it seems like a pretty good argument uh, until I think you look a little more closely at the argument. Because it seems to me that we have to ask, what is the synagogue? The synagogue was a place of prayer and Bible study. That was the origin of the synagogue. It was, in effect, a kind of school. A school where people eager to know the law, eager to fellowship with one another, eager to unite in prayer, gathered to study the scripture and to pray. Now, over time, as it evolved, there, there did develop all sorts of uh, uh, regulations and rituals and, and uh, ceremonies that were followed in the synagogue. But any pious Jew knew that the synagogue was not the temple. And what was the difference? I think any pious Jew knew that the temple was the place that God had appointed his official covenant worship to take place and that any pious Jew was obligated regularly to travel to Jerusalem to participate in that worship. And the synagogue was an informal gathering, however structured it became, however uh, many uh, 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 rules they may have followed, it was an informal gathering of people to pray and to study the Bible. Now, I think this is important because... Uh, uh, sometimes we say, well, yeah, the Bible needs to direct us um, in all that we do in worship, but uh, where is the authorization for Sunday school? Well, Sunday school is a somewhat informal gathering, especially if you've been to the Escondido Christian Reformed Church, uh, is a somewhat informal gathering for studying the Bible usually. People who go to Sunday school, if they have any theological acumen, know they haven't been to church. They haven't worshipped God. They haven't been with a covenant community in, in acts of worship. It's a valuable, useful, informal gathering of God's people, sometimes for prayer, sometimes for Bible study, sometimes for other kind of study. It doesn't need divine warrant because it is not part of the required life of the community. As far as I know, nobody in a church gets disciplined for missing Sunday school. Although Vera has to bring a, a note from home when she's not there. But you can be disciplined if you miss church. Certainly, uh, as far as we can see, uh, for, for a long time at least, uh, Jews were not disciplined for not attending synagogue. But they were violators of the law if they didn't attend the temple services at the four great festivals in Jerusalem. 
You see, there, there's an altogether different phenomenon here. And uh, to try to use the synagogue as evidence that God uh, encourages creativity in your worship, I don't think works at all. It's comparing apples and oranges. They are not genuinely uh, comparable uh, realities. So, uh, so much for um, the Old Testament. How are these themes then carried on into the New Testament? What is new about the New Testament and what represents continuity from the concern of God, the passion for God, the zeal of God for his worship uh, with the New Testament? Well, I think one of the first things we see is that uh, Jesus comes as the fulfillment of all of those pointers, all of those types, all of that anticipation. He is the new high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is the true sacrifice. Uh, he offers his life to God on the altar of the cross. He fulfills all of that expectation, you see, for us, and uh, therefore uh, means that we never need another altar. We never need another sacrifice. This was part of the passion of the Reformation. The, the tragedy of the development of medieval Christianity was the notion that we need another sacrifice, that we need another priest, that we need somebody to stand at an altar and offer sacrifice anew for us. That's all a lie and a sham. Jesus did it all, once for all, on the cross. Never the need for another sacrifice. Never the need for another priest. All done by the Savior on the cross. That's the glory of the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so when we go to God, we need no mediator but Christ. And we come to God only through that mediation. Just as no Old Testament saint felt safe approaching God, even in prayer, apart from a sacrificial altar, so we can never approach God as His new covenant people, apart from Christ and the fulfillment that we have in him. But when we read the New Testament carefully, we see that, that Christ is not only a priest and sacrifice, fulfillment of the altar, um, but Christ is himself the temple, isn't he? That's what we're told in John chapter 2, where Jesus says, uh, tear down this temple and in three days I will build it up again. Because what, what Jesus is saying there is everything that the Old Testament temple stood for is fulfilled in me. The temple was the meeting place between a holy God and sinners. And now with my coming, the meeting place between a holy God and sinners is me. It's not this building. And I will demonstrate that to you by raising this temple up again after you destroy it. Of course, Jesus was still speaking somewhat cryptically. They didn't fully gather what he was saying, and they didn't gather it because they hadn't even gathered what the Old Testament revelation was about. Because Jesus there says, uh, you've misunderstood the temple. You've turned it into an emporium. You've turned it into a marketplace. You've turned it into a meeting place of man and man. You've turned it into a place where you're doing your business and you're making your profit. And you've missed the whole point that the temple was intended to be a meeting place between God and man. And what it testifies, Jesus is in effect saying, I think, is uh, you don't care about meeting God. And that, of course, is, is the pervasive problem of human beings in sin. They lose all sensitivity to their need for God. They lose all sensitivity for their need to, to meet with God. 
and, and they think they are fulfilled simply in meeting with one another, that they can get away with ignoring God. And Jesus comes as he reveals himself so, so powerfully, so marvelously, particularly in John 2, to, to manifest his zeal for the truth of what the temple stands for so that these people will understand who he is and what his ministry is all about. And so he quotes uh, from uh, Psalm 69, is it, zeal for thy house has consumed me. And, and of course those words have a prophetic dimension that most of those who heard it in his own day wouldn't have understood, but we can. Zeal for his house, zeal for the truth of God, zeal for a meeting between man and God does literally consume our Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? It kills him. Only by his temple being destroyed and then raised again is there hope for us to meet with God. But what's so crucial, you see, is that we, we have a clear notion that Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. And that's why at such a profound level we as Reformed people particularly say we dare not, we must not recreate the temple. And that is why uh, uh, those of us who are um, uh, sensitive to such things don't call our churches, our church meeting halls sanctuaries. Sometimes we get... Um, put out with one another because there's not a good substitute word and um, we feel we reform people get a little persnickety sometimes but, uh, but it's true you see it's not a sanctuary it is not a holy place all that the holy place of the old covenant symbolized is fulfilled in Jesus Christ he's our only holy place and that's why we get so nervous when there's an effort to reconstruct a holy place a place that makes us feel holy. Because it really distracts from Jesus. That's the Reformed Confession. It doesn't lead us to Jesus, it leads us away from Jesus. And that's our passion to say that Jesus is our temple. And Jesus is our access to God. And that theme is taken up so powerfully in uh, in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 10, verse uh, 19 and following, in a special way, celebrates this, uh, this dimension of the truth. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body and since we have a great priest over the house of God let us draw near to God and, and in those few words the whole of the Old Testament is sort of encapsulated for us uh, in, in, in this letter uh, let us draw near and how do we dare to draw near to God only through Jesus Christ, only through His body and blood, because His body and blood are the curtain torn for us. And of course, the author of the Hebrews uh, knows that, that when Jesus died on the cross, literally the curtain was rent in two in the temple. 
symbolizing powerfully by God's sovereign action that the whole, most holy place was opened and, and that we're told here when we think about Jesus' body and blood, we can think about it as the curtain being torn apart so that we can enter the most holy place because he's our high priest. You see, he's, he's the way, he's the curtain, he's the priest, he's the sacrifice, he's the all in all. But what temple is it that we enter? And this, I think, is, um, again, a point too often uh, under-emphasized among us. Through Jesus Christ, we enter the heavenly temple. That is, we enter heaven. We worship in heaven. Now, did you get that? Uh, what, what Hebrews labors to say is that the earthly temple was always only a copy of the heavenly. It was, a, it was a shadow. It was a pointer. But the real meeting place between God and man, the real presence of God, is heaven. And uh, Paul testifies this to this in a number of places when he talks about how we are already, as the people of God, seated in the heavenlies. Now, that's always a difficult concept in a lot of ways to understand. No, we're seated at Pinecrest Christian Conference Center. That's where we're seated. And yet the testimony of Scripture is that not, we are not only the citizens of heaven already, but already somehow we participate in the heavenly reality that Jesus has opened the way and by faith we draw near and enter that heavenly temple. Jew and Gentile, male and female, bond and slave, all have access through Jesus Christ to that heavenly temple, which is the true place of worship. And I think that's why Reformed people historically kept their meeting places simple. Part of it was economic. We couldn't afford to do anything else. But more profoundly, it was principial. Our true meeting with Jesus Christ, our true fellowship with God, occurs not in this building or in any building where we gather. It occurs in heaven itself. And what we need to do as we worship is not create, not recreate the temple on earth to bind us to earth, but to open the eyes of faith to realize that in Jesus Christ right now we might, may rise in faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit and we worship in heaven in the very presence of God. That's the glory of the worship that I think the New Covenant points us to. We already have a foretaste of that eternal heavenly glory that awaits us. And in that sense, our churches, our, our meeting places, our assembly halls, are only, if you will, launching pads to heaven. We don't want to be tied there. Uh, part of the whole point of the book of Hebrews, isn't it? The, the, the lamentable fact that there were some Christians who seemed to want to go back to all the shadows and didn't realize that they were fulfilled. And, and I think that we could argue that, that those who recreate sanctuaries on earth are guilty of that kind of problem that, that is being attacked by the, by the book of Hebrews. They, they want to see it with the physical eye. 
not realizing that in, in insisting on seeing it with the physical eye, they're really losing their privilege of entering heaven by faith. They're binding themselves to the visible and the earthly when their privilege is to have the invisible and the heavenly. You see, in, in that sense, there is no great discontinuity between our privilege in the new covenant and actually entering heaven. There's more discontinuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. Because already we possess, in essence, all that we will possess in heaven. And, and that's the privilege of the new covenant worship. And that's why... Um, the New Testament in its directions on worship is so simple. I think a lot of people have concluded that the New Testament doesn't have much to say about worship because what it says about worship is so simple. And the simplicity of the New Covenant is you don't need an elaborate temple, you don't need elaborate rituals, you don't need a, a, an elaborate priesthood. You have Jesus. You have His Word. You have preachers. You have access to heaven. You can express all that very, very briefly. Very, very simply. It's not difficult. It's not sophisticated. And it's not emotionally satisfying to the natural man. I want something more. I want my smells and bells. I want to feel holy. You see, the, the elaborated, uh, elaborate liturgical worship can easily appeal to the natural man. Now, I'm not saying, obviously, that everybody involved in those services are just natural, unregenerate people. But I'm saying that we want to be able to see our holiness. Give me a stained glass window so I can have just a little holiness. Uh, or, or better yet, you know, give me a little incense. Most of us don't have much experience with incense. I don't think we really want it. But, but um, you know, um, after all, doesn't the book of Revelation say that the, the incense rises up before God? We have to be careful how we use the book of the Revelation to establish new covenant worship. Uh, the book of Revelation is full of symbols, beloved. We know that at our best moments. Um, and, and the incense of the book of the Revelation, the book of the Revelation tells us, is the symbol of the prayers of God. And we don't need an altar of incense anymore because we can pray. But it is, you see, sort of naturally a little more satisfying to have a beautiful altar with glowing coals and smoke rising. And it, it, it satisfies the need for the visible, the visual for us. But it, it's second best. At best, it's second best. It's unnecessary. We can pray. We don't need an altar of incense. And that's what the New Testament is saying for you. It's, it's really very simple. You come together, you pray, you sing, you read a little Bible, you hear the word preached, and you have the sacraments, and that's all you need. And the glorious simplicity of the New Testament is precisely, it seems to me, what the, um, uh, what the Reformed tradition of worship recaptured and revitalized. Um, somebody wrote once, there are only two 
consistent traditions of, of Christian worship, the Roman Catholic and the Calvinist. This was written by, I think, a liberal fellow. He wasn't a particular player in the controversy. Um, uh, and and he, he says the, the Catholic principle of worship, the Roman Catholic principle of worship is elaborate as much as possible because the more you've got, the better it is. And so, if you've got the money, don't build a church with one altar. Build a church with as many altars as you can. You go in the great cathedrals of Roman Catholic churches, there's a, there's a, a high central altar, but then there's all sorts of side altars. Uh, don't just have one statue. Have lots of statues. Um, uh, don't, uh, don't have just one uh, 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 ritual act of piety, have a variety of, of acts of piety. Um, don't just have one mediator, have, have lots of mediators. The more the better. Everybody can find their own, if you'll excuse the expression, niche. Uh, everybody can find, you see, their own saint that fits, their own, uh, their own prayer vigils that work for them. Um, and, and if you want to come up with a new one, that's okay. The principle, you see, of fullness uh, the, the more the better and uh, you go especially into the old uh, cathedrals and, and it, from a Roman Catholic point of view those places drip with grace everywhere you look there's grace available and, and so often we, we as Protestants aren't understood by these Catholics what do you mean we don't believe in grace everywhere I go in my church there's grace uh, the stations of the cross uh, statues to burn uh, um, uh, no that, that's what Protestants do um, um <laughs> Candles to burn before the statues. Um, uh, you see, at every point, there's, uh, there's uh, uh, something for me. And, and um, in, a, in a sense, in a strange sort of sense, I think you can argue that Pentecostal worship is kind of a parallel. Uh, there too, there is a, a fullness, something for everybody. Uh, 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 an expression of power, not, not so much visual now, but of power, power manifesting itself in all sorts of ways. And Pentecostals often going from church to church, moving, because they're looking for where the Spirit is, where the, where's the power today? So, uh, on the one hand, you have the Roman Catholic notion of fullness, and on the other, the consistent reform position, which says worship is very simple and very concentrated. This is the wide road, and this is the narrow gate. Uh, but you see, that's, that's the reform principle, and it's a principle that um, makes great demands on its people. Um, that, that one have that concentration, that focus, those eyes of faith awakened. It's very demanding. I, I think it's much more demanding than this fullness notion. Um, because we have to live by faith in the promises of God's Word. We don't have all of that uh, support, although sometimes we don't take all the support we have been given. But anyway, we'll return to that uh, when we talk about the sacraments. Um, that's our quick overview. Uh, and uh, we have... A couple of minutes. Shall we have questions if people have questions? We haven't gotten into anything controversial yet, so uh, there probably aren't any questions. Yes? You mentioned the, the two broad extremes of Catholicism and Protestant worship. Could you maybe comment on some of the more subtle 
No. <laughs> Actually, I'll be doing that right along as I go along because now we're going to get more specific. Um, and um, uh, so I, I will try to be specific as I go along, but I'd, I'd rather try to make the case as I go about some of these issues. Um, yes. Bob, are you going to get into things like Yes, I will get into that. These aren't very interesting answers to questions, are they? <laughs> yes. My own, that, that's an excellent question, and my own, um, unlike the other ones I was asked. Um, uh, I, well, I have an answer to this one. That's what makes it a good question. Um, it, it seems to me that, uh, again, looking at as a historian, that what happened is that Reformed worship from, say, the time of Calvin till, I don't know, the 1930s, let's say, uh, went through a whole series of very small changes that, by and large, weren't noticed by many people or commented often at, at great length, and that those changes um, involved some modest compromise of reformed principles of worship, perhaps nothing uh, earth-shattering. But I think by, say, the 1930s, that's a kind of arbitrary date, um, a lot of reformed people were no longer clear in their own minds as to why they worshiped the way they did. It had become a kind of tradition it was no longer the purest form of the Reformed tradition. Uh, it, was, it was comfortable. It was familiar. It's the way we like to worship. For Reformed people like that, when the onslaught of the Pentecostal challenge came, most of us were not equipped to explain why we worship the way we worship as opposed to these new forms of worship. And, and I would say the very first responsibility we have to take on ourselves if we're to help other people is to be able to explain to ourselves why we worship the way we worship. To have a clear notion of what principles undergird our worship, what justifies the particular acts of worship in which we engage, because if we aren't clear about why we worship, then we'll never be able to help other people think through uh, worship issues. And if, and if the best answer we have is, well, this is sort of familiar and comfortable to me, then people will smile and say, well, but what's going on upstairs is more familiar and comfortable to me. So you, go, you guys go ahead, stay down here and sing your 19th century stuff, and I'll go upstairs and sing 20th century stuff. And we'll all just be comfortable. Um, I, I think the Reformed community has to, to regain a measure of passion about its approach to worship. Uh, but not just 
not just passion. It has to be a, a passion that can justify itself, that can explain uh, why the patterns that we follow of worship are important to us and why they should be important to others because we believe they're biblical. And that's what I'll try to unpack a little bit as we go along. Yes? I think that's a good point, and and I think um, uh, you know I, I think one of one of the things that makes preaching so difficult is that a preacher has to preach in a way that edifies the the studious lifelong saint, and can speak in a way that edifies children, and probably if he's effective in edifying the children, would also be comprehensible to the unbeliever who's come in. Uh, he has to uh, present the heart of the gospel, and he also has to present um, uh, something deeper also uh, from the scripture for the congregation. So preaching is not easy. And those of you who don't preach and go home and complain about the preacher, uh, bear that in mind. Uh, it, it is not easy to fulfill that task. And in a lot of ways, it becomes harder and harder in our day because the visitor may know no, absolutely nothing you know, a hundred years ago, you could assume that people would know at least a little Bible knowledge, a, a little bit about the stories of the Bible, um, a little of the language we use, and it becomes more and more difficult in our time. Yes? For the benefit of those listening to the tape, could you repeat the question and then give your answer? Okay, in the future. Thank you. <laughs> yes? Yeah, it, it, it does seem, uh, it, it is not, let me back up, what, what about what, um, if the synagogue is informal, did the Jews not have a weekly uh, worship? Um, the emphasis in the fourth commandment in the Old Testament is clearly on rest. Uh, there are references to holy convocation, some of them a little unclear, but, but uh, the great emphasis of the fourth commandment in the Old Covenant was rest. Um, and it's as if the, the community is, is worshiping significantly through its representatives at the temple. Um, again, a concept that our individualism maybe doesn't help us comprehend very well. But um, no, it, it does seem that um, there wasn't a regular instituted form of worship that all Jews everywhere could participate in uh, on the Sabbath day, and, and that's probably part of what led to the creation of this more informal place where Jews, pious Jews, could come together to read and to pray together. I don't know if that answers the question. How, how, one, one more. All right, we'll let the minister get his own back. Um, probably many of our churches and uh, even in our Presbyterian ministerial level, we've been uh, 
hit with uh, uh, many people that uh, grew up in reform circles, or at least uh, think said that they were reformed, leaving reformed churches and going into Eastern Orthodoxy. And a lot of us just say, how can that happen? It's got something to do with worship, uh, at least a lot of it, I think, but uh, but scratch our heads and say, how can that happen? Maybe in the course of the week, you can answer that. Well, l- l- let me just answer that briefly. I think one of the dangers we as Reformed people have... Um, I, don't, I don't remember the question. Um, how can it happen that Reformed people can become Eastern Orthodox? Um, the, I, I think one of the dangers our Reformed churches have, um, and I think it may be a peculiarly Orthodox Presbyterian danger, if I'm not meddling now, um, is that our churches become theology societies, that we are people interested in theology, we talk about theology, uh, we are perhaps more intellectual than the -the run-of-the-mill people, and normal people um, aren't aren't entirely comfortable in that environment. Um, uh, And and we have to ask, how do we establish churches where people that aren't theologians can come and be comfortable, can come and be really a part of it? And I think some people overreact to that problem by saying, what I really want now is, is, is not this schoolroomish character that Reformed Christianity too often takes on. I want a really mystical connection with God. Some people find that in Pentecostalism in its immediacy and power. Others find it in the liturgy of Rome or Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, but I think it drives it, us back to this question, is our, is our worship emotionally fulfilling in a legitimate way. I mean, there are illegitimate ways of fulfilling emotions, but it's also true God has made us emotional beings and is our reformed worship adequately fulfilling legitimate emotional needs or does it become just too um, narrowly intellectual? And uh, so, you know, I I think... um, you know, I, I know one young man who graduated from our seminary who uh, six months out became Eastern Orthodox. He was only with us one year. He was at RTS two years, so it's primarily their fault. But um, um, uh, p- part of it is, I would say, in his case, that he um, failed to value theology as much as he ought to. I mean, he became slightly indifferent to certain theological issues. But I, I do think... Again, we come back, is our Reformed worship all that it ought to be? Do we, do we leave room in our Reformed worship for those who aren't s- focused on being first-class theologians? Can they come and be simple Christians and enter into the life of worship of the church as a whole? The church only needs so many theologians. There needs to be a place for people to do other things, uh, uh, to, to do diaconal work, to... Um, uh, to serve the Lord in, in a variety of ways. And I think we need to work at that. Well, on that sour note, I'll leave quickly. <laughs> <laughs>